Welcome, welcome tonight. We're glad you guys are here. Um, how many of you guys saw those weird robots or have seen them? That was my first time seeing them. I, they are taking over, it's true. It was my first time seeing them, I, I, I thought to myself, you know, maybe that galaxy isn't actually that far away. Um, maybe we're a little closer than we think. Um, they need names, though. Uh, have people tried to name them? Yeah, but like they need individual names. You guys should start petitions. Um, <laughs> all right, so, um, so we got a big passage tonight, guys, and I'm really excited you all are here. Um, but as we continue on in Hebrews, I'd like to ask you guys to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 12. Um, we're not going to quite finish off chapter 6, uh, but we're going we're gonna, to uh, get, get a little closer. And uh, we've got a really, big, a really big passage tonight, not necessarily in terms of the amount of verses, but, um, but in terms of the, uh, uh, what, what is in the verses. It's, a, it's not an uh, easy topic for us tonight. And so we're just going to jump right on, right on in, and we're going to read verses uh, 4 through uh, 12 together. And uh, there is no you version tonight. Uh, it is not Mariah's fault. It is my fault. I promise you that. But... Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. So it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Okay, so this is a weighty passage. Um, What we see in this passage is uh, dangers of not persevering. We see warnings and encouragements in this passage. And as we think back to where we started in, in Hebrews chapter 6, um, and Shandy uh, introed into chapter 6 with verses 1 through 3, we kind of see this discussion um, back then, right? And if you guys remember, it's the, Hebrews is charging the believers to live on, to not just live on spiritual milk, but to move on to deeper things, to move on to spiritual meat, Right? And um, the author of Hebrews will certainly do that, especially as we get into chapter 7, talking about Melchizedek, and and certainly um, further on in Hebrews as well. He's going to challenge his readers. But what we have here, before we get there, is the writer of Hebrews seemed... um, uh, saw, saw it necessary to first deepen and expand upon his warning, deepen and expand upon uh, his warning to uh, those he is writing to. And so if you guys are um, familiar at all with this verse, or maybe you're, maybe you're not familiar with it, but you've just read it the, for the first time tonight, I want to read verses 4 and 6 again, um, because they're kind of some scary verses. 
4 through 6, it says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, and holding him up to contempt. So this is perhaps the most terrifying warning passage in the entire New Testament. It really is. It's a scary one. Um, There's only a couple that might even rank up anywhere close. This is a scary passage for us when we read through it. And it's also been the topic of serious debate among believers for many, many years. It still is. It's not like it's, you know, settled or we figured it out or something, right? It's just a topic of debate. And so because of that and because of how serious this topic is, I I do want to ask you guys to to show me a little bit of grace tonight as we work through this, this passage um, and, and have some grace for each other if you guys are you know, having conversations um, that are uh, spurred on by this sermon here tonight with each other. And the reason I say that is because, um, number one, uh, about half of you will be mad at me at the end of the sermon, depending on which way I approach this text. And I, I joke and I exaggerate a little bit, but, um, but that is, it is serious. You know, people, people get riled up about this topic. They really do. People, people get riled up about this topic and, and how to approach passages like this. Um, but it's also, I ask for a little grace because we need to acknowledge that um, churches, churches have split over interpretations of passages like this. Um, people have seen interpretations of passages like this as very important from a doctrinal standpoint. And so we need to give grace with each other. Not only am I asking for it from you tonight if you happen to disagree with me, but also with each other when we, when we um, discuss later on. And then number three, I want to ask for grace because regardless of where you're at in how you approach this verse and these passages, um, this is a serious topic, right? It really is. This is a serious passage. It's weighty, okay? It, it's, it's, it's a serious passage, and, and we want to we we have a proper respect and a proper humility in, in knowing that you know, we don't always know everything. We come to Scripture, and we try to bring um, the, all, the best knowledge that we have to it. And so what I want to do with this passage is I want to break it up into two sections. We'll do chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, and then we'll do chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. The first part, obviously the one that we reread, is kind of the more controversial part. Um, and then the second part of the passage is where I think we'll uh, find a little bit more of agreement, regardless of you know, what stances we take. Um, and, and to some degree, I believe it will help unite us even in our disagreement. And so, so we'll get there too. Um, but... Uh, but let's go ahead and, and, and jump back in um, and, and start to, to work through the text. So verses 4 through 6, one more time. Actually, just, four, just, just verse 4. So for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, I will keep reading, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and powers of the age to come, and have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And so, if you've been, like, confused on my introduction here, the topic is, essentially what the topic that we're dealing with is the idea of apostasy, um, which is just, is, is as simple as somebody who is in the faith and then turns away from the faith. It's a rejection of. And it's, and it's not just a, like, oh, I... I uh, I let my membership expire. It's a, it's a willful rejection. That's the, that is apostasy. Whether you agree with it or not, that's what apostasy is. It's a willful rejection of something. And, and you don't just 
remove yourself, but you become an enemy of what you once were. And so if you hear somebody referred to as an apostate or something, that, that is, uh, that's within this line. And so there are three um, traditionally kind of... Uh, accepted or, or, or popular ways to approach this passage. And, and to kind of be fair to, to a, a diverse group like you all, I want to I at least kind of show what those are and outline those first um, before we really jump in. So the first view is called the hypothetical view. And uh, this view would say that this warning refers to kind of a hypothetical uh, situation um, in the sense of... Uh, those who take this view would say that this is a hypothetical situation. It's kind of given as like a, an exaggerated like what-if statement, right? Like it's like, hey, if this were to happen, it would be really bad, but it won't, so, you know, don't do it. But, um, and that's kind of the idea, that, that, that it's not something that ever actually could happen, um, but it's just a hypothetical that is used for the purpose of pushing believers on towards, uh, towards, towards God instead of away from him. Now, I'm not a huge fan of this view uh, because I think it just kind of, in a sense, I think that it makes the warning like totally dull, null, and void. Um, and so I'm just not a huge fan of this view. But if this happens to be your view, that's okay. As long as the basic principles in practicality, I think, apply, which is to still take the warning and use that warning to push yourself towards God and not away from God. So it's okay if this is your view. It's just not the one that I like. Uh, second is the apparent view. The apparent view, and, and this is probably a view that I would wager most of you are familiar with, even if you're not familiar with the name of it. Uh, but, but this view asserts that those who fall away, as the passage suggests, um, are not true believers, but that they are people who appear to be believers because of their familiarity with the gospel, um, church life, etc. right? Like they've tasted, shared, enlightened, but then they rejected God, and so those who take this view would say, thus, they were never actually saved in the first place. Um, so if you guys have heard you know, the saying, once saved, always saved, that would kind of fall into, um, into this view. And I do like this view a lot better than the hypothetical view, because I think there's a lot more backing there. Um, and I think that the warning still applies um, as an actual warning. It's just not talking, the question is, is it talking to believers or those who are maybe look like believers and are not, Right. And then the third view is the actual view, and this is the view that essentially states four, tr four truths about this passage. Um, the, first, the first statement is that, it would be, that this passage would be talking about regenerate believers, or those who are saved for all intents and purposes. Um, and then that since it is talking to believers, the passage is warning those in Christ to be concerned about the endurance of their faith, to be concerned about perseverance in their faith. And then thirdly, uh, that it is possible for a believer to fall away through unbelief. And then lastly, uh, that apostasy cannot be remedied. If you kind of look at the, you know, the first part, it says, for it is impossible for those who, blank, 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 to be restored back to repentance, right? That's like the full thought there. And so that's the actual view. And to be fully transparent, after really a lot of study here, um, I think I read like six or seven different commentaries on this. Um, but this is kind of the view that I end up taking. And so obviously I'm going to present the actual view to you, the, the view that I hold. Um, but now all of you know if you disagree with me or not, right? <laughs> but I, I, I want to encourage you guys, please stick with me even if you did disagree. Because um, it won't be the entirety of the sermon. And it also, uh, at, uh, at worst, we hopefully sharpen each other, right, with some hopefully well-thought-out ideas, right? And, um, and so my final qualifying statement here is that 
we simply do not have enough time to cover this topic in its entirety, right? And that would be true regardless of which view you take, right? We just don't have enough time. There's so many passages to weigh in, and there really are a lot of good arguments and a lot of good verses to bring up, um, I think, on, on both sides with the apparent view and the actual view. So, with that in mind, what we're going to do for our passage is we're going to mostly stick in the passage of Hebrews, and then we're going to also reference some verses within Hebrews uh, for proper context on kind of how he's talking and, and what he means when he says different things. So with that, uh, we'll uh, <clears throat> want to uh, jump back in, and I think the first thing that we have to ask ourselves as we get into the verses and we work through them individually is what is the author saying, how does the writer of Hebrews describe those to whom the warning would apply, right? Like that's, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road of the disagreement. Um, so how does he describe them? What is, what is he saying here? So verse four, the first thing it says, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. So enlightened, right? So, so what does that mean, right? Is that like, like being exposed to the truth or is it like knowing the truth, right? That's kind of the question there. And, um, the writer of Hebrews uses this word in other sections, including in chapter 10, and, 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 that's, and there's a reason why I believe that uh, this term enlightened kind of refers more to conversion than just a simple hearing of the gospel. Um, and that's, that's partially because of how he is speaking to believers in chapter 10 later, and he, he says that they are believers who are enlightened, and he calls them brothers who approach God with confidence. Um, so if he's using the word enlightened in the same way, both places, um, then that's kind of the idea we get there. Then the second one in, in verse 4, who have tasted the heavenly gift. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. What does that mean? Does that mean it's just kind of like knowing a little bit of it, right? It's like, because you might bring up the, the, the objection and say, well, tasting is not swallowing or digesting or eating all of it, right? Um, but I would, again, go back to the, the way that the writer of Hebrews uses this word tasting in the rest of the book. And back in chapter 2, verse 9, he refers to Jesus tasting death. Jesus tasting death. Now, as believers, we certainly know, right, whether we disagree on this passage or not, we certainly know that Jesus didn't just dabble with death, right? We know that the wrath of the Father rested upon him as he died on the cross, and he died a very real death on the cross into the tomb, dead for three days, right? He didn't, he tasted death, but he didn't just like, it wasn't like a sip of, straw, sip of the straw, right? He experienced it fully on our behalf. And so, again, if the writer of Hebrews is consistent in the way that he uses this, um, I believe him to mean that this is kind of a full experience of the gospel, which is God's heavenly gift, right? Tasted the heavenly gift. Heavenly gift, what is that? That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's, that's grace. That's Jesus's message to us. And then as we move on, uh, heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, Shared in the Holy Spirit. So uh, when Peter preached at Pentecost, right, and, and, and it said that everybody was uh, cut to the heart, right, and they said, brothers, what, we, what must we do to be saved? And he says, uh, repent of your sins and get baptized uh, for the forgiveness of your sins so that you may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, again, regardless of what side of the debate you're on, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that's kind of like, like everybody agrees, that is the surest sign that you are a believer, right? That you are a true bona fide believer in Jesus Christ, is that you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. And so this is kind of like, like if we were going to really spend a long time discussing this and kind of having a debate back and forth, this is like where the rubber would meet the road. Like we got to figure out what this means. 
what does it mean to share in the Holy Spirit? And so, again, I'm going to go back to Hebrews, and I'm going to look at the ways that he uses this same word. Shared is also translated as partakers, and then also live in Hebrews. And I'll give you just a couple examples of how he uses it in other places. So the word shared in chapter 3, verse 14, is where he refers to holy brothers who share or partake in a heavenly calling. Uses the same word as share in the Holy Spirit. Then in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8, he refers to those who partake in the discipline of the Father. Partaking, sharing in the discipline of the Father. And then the same word is present from our sermon last week um, where Shandy talked about living on milk and eating spiritual meat. Well, the word live is actually the same word for share. It's the same Greek word for share. And so he's using this in the same way. So those who are living or partaking on or sharing in spiritual milk, right, Hebrews is talking to them, and he's saying, move on to deeper things. It's the same word here for those who share in the Holy Spirit or partake in the Holy Spirit. And so if the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of us is one of the clearest ways to, uh, to know that you're a believer, if we were to interpret this as talking about somebody who has the Holy Spirit, then that would kind of be a done deal, right? But, but if we determined that it wasn't, then you'd kind of take one of the other views, and, and, and we want to acknowledge that for sure. Um, but then moving on into verses 5 and 6, it says, and have tasted, there's that word again, tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. So as we kind of finish this uh, immediate um, section where we see the, the finality of this warning here, um, we see the seriousness of apostasy and the bitter possibility of falling away and what that means. It means holding Jesus' sacrifice in contempt. As a believer, we look at Jesus' sacrifice as a great treasure to, to, to be had, to be shared, something that we, we are willing to place the foundation of our life upon and, and, and live every single decision based on that one occurrence, right? Jesus' sacrifice for us, right? That is worthy of everything in our lives, right? But if you were a believer and you believed that at one point and then you turn away, you're not just rejecting it, you're spitting on it, you're holding it into contempt. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is that you're, you're, you're spitting on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that's kind of the, the, the um, that's kind of one of the things there. And then, and then the other thing I want to draw our attention to is it says in verse 6, and then those who have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So uh, this, is, this is one of those this is one of those kind of, I guess, word games, if you will. But how can you restore somebody to repentance who was never in a state of repentance? Um, and the same thing with those who fall away, where it says those who fall away. How can you fall away if you did not once stand at one point, right? And so, um, so again, I, I do think this is part of why I, I kind of totally reject the hypothetical view, because the warning is real. It's talking about somebody, right? It's talking about somebody. And again, you know, to be fair, the major debate is, is it talking about real bona fide believers committing apostasy, or is it talking about people who are like maybe on the edge, right, or they haven't quite committed somehow? Um, and, and that's the debate, right? But let's pretend for just a minute that the proper conclusion is what I've just presented to you, is that Hebrews is speaking to believers, and he is warning them to not fall away. He's warning them that apostasy is possible. If that is true, 
Here's what the passage is not teaching, because a lot of you are probably thinking, like, you're having some, some problems coming up in your mind. Here's what it's not teaching. It's not teaching, this passage is not teaching that um, it does not advocate for a, a spiritual limbo where you're in and out of salvation, where you're like back and forth, like, oh, I sinned a little bit, and I'm not saved, and now I'm back again. And the reason I say that it's not advocating for that is because the, of the finality of what is being said. Like, we know that for sure. It says, for it is impossible in the case of those who blank, 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 verse 6, to have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So whatever this sin is, the sin of apostasy, whatever this sin is, it is it's final. It's not a back and forth, back and forth, back and forth thing, okay? We don't, we don't get that with our relationship with God, especially if we're at the point where we have all of these things that the writer of Hebrews mentions, right? Tasting in the heavenly gift, sharing the Holy Spirit, all of these things. This is not an, a, a quick decision. The other thing that I want to say is that it's, this passage and others that might teach on this does not advocate a complete uncertainty in our standing before God. It does not advocate that. And partially I want to say that because in our next passage, uh, the writer, in the next section, the writer confirms it, and we'll get into that. Um, but then also the, the rest of Scripture would, would be contradicted if it was advocating that there's just no way we can have any clue whether we're saved or not. That's not something that we find in Scripture. It's not something that we find in the totality of Scripture by any means, uh, by any way, shape, or form. And as a quick side note, if, if you are somebody who is really struggling with where you are at in your salvation or really, really burdened by that, not to the point of like, you know, being burdened, where am I at right now? I need to change some things in my life and, and move forward. But like, you're really being weighed down by that. You, you do need to talk to somebody. That, that's not where you should be staying long term. You shouldn't be staying in that wondering, you know, if I'm saved, wondering. That's not where we should be staying long term. That's not what God wants from us. And I would encourage you to go to the book of First John to say, what are the markers of my salvation? I think that book essentially answers that question. It's like almost dedicated uh, to answering that question. So, so don't stay there if that's where you're at. But then lastly, taking kind of a fuller breadth of passages that we would use to weigh in on this topic of apostasy, the Bible is not teaching that you apostatize without knowing it, okay? It's not teaching that you just are like walking around one day and you're like, oh, <laughs> I guess I apostatized. I'm not a Christian anymore, right? Like, that is not what Scripture is teaching either, okay? Um, the scripture teaches that, and again, whether this is people who are not quite believers or it's true believers, regardless, this is not a like, oh, I just slipped into this, or I just, I sinned just one too many times and it just happened to me, right? Okay? That is not what scripture is teaching either. And I think we see that again as we move into the next section of our passage. And now, I realize some of you may be convinced. Um, some of you maybe already had my interpretation to some degree, and some of you uh, still disagree, maybe even more than you ever did before. And, and that's, that's okay. That's okay. Um, because here's where I want to get kind of practical. I'm a big believer that if theology does not translate into practice, if, in other words, if our knowledge of God and if our knowledge of his word does not translate into the practical, into something that we can do, something that applies to us, because it's God's word to us, it's his revelation to us. So if it doesn't translate into the practical, then it's probably a pretty good idea that we need to like circle back and start over, maybe. And, and, and I think as we get into the practical of this, uh, we, we, see, uh, we see maybe both groups start to align a little bit, a little bit closer. So bear with me here. How many of you guys have uh, played in a competitive sports environment in a team, team sport? 
team sport. And so swimmers, you don't count. I know you have like teams or whatever, but you no track runners. I, I respect the sport, but it's not a team. Okay. So those of you that have played competitive sports, I just started a war. Those of you that have played competitive sports in a team environment, you've You've gotten these speeches, right? So you, you just get done with a hard practice, maybe, and, um, and, and then your coach comes up to you, and he, and, and he gives you this speech, and he's like, hey, you know, the next couple games, they're going to be tough. They're going to be rough. These teams are good, right? Their conditioning is top-notch. Their skills are good. Maybe they're even better than you, right? And he gives you this speech, and he says, look, you better be hitting the weights, you know, in your off time, right? You better be getting your drills in outside of practice. You better be showing up to practice with, with a game day mentality, right? And you, you get this speech, right? And he's talking to the whole team. He's not singling anybody out necessarily. Sometimes they do. That's rough. Been there. <laughs> uh, but, but he's talking to the whole team, right? And so as far as you know, you could speculate. You could say, all right, um, I think he was kind of talking to, to Joe over here because he's, he's been missing his, you know, his, his runs in the morning or, or whatever. But he could be talking about, he could be singling out a couple people. He could be talking to the whole team no matter what, right? He could also be talking to an individual, but he's just not going to call him out. So he's going to give the speech to the whole team because it's still worthwhile, right, for them to all hear that same message. And, but regardless of where you're at or what you might think, you're on the team. You got the speech, Right? You better hear it. You better take it. You better hit, listen to the warning of the coach, okay? I believe this to be true of passages like this. We might disagree a little bit on, you know, once saved, always save in the issue of apostasy. That, that is okay. That is okay. But at the end of the day, we are all receiving the same messages of Scripture, okay? We're all receiving the same uh, warnings in Scripture, at the end of the day, we all have the same destination at the end of our lives, and it's heaven or hell. Okay? We, we, we're all in the same boat on these things. And regardless of where we're at on the theological debate, both sides pretty well agree on at least one big thing, and that's that all believers are required to remain faithful until the day that they die. And the only difference is that retrospectively, Maybe if you weren't a believer somehow, one theological camp would look at you and say, well, he was never saved in the first place. And the other would say, well, maybe he was saved, but he, you know, he, he walked away, he chose to do this or that, right? And so here's where the rubber meets the road. When we come to warning passages like this in Scripture, in the New Testament, are we too quick to dismiss or are we willing to pause? Are we willing to have an awareness of our own abilities to waver? Are we willing to have an awareness that God requires loyalty till the very end? Are we willing to have an awareness that God doesn't require just a quick prayer at a church one day, that he requires everything in our lives, okay? Are we willing to take the warnings and heed them? And ultimately, I think what I'd really like to communicate to you on this topic is that I believe we need to take these passages seriously. Because when our lives are said and done, and we stand before the creator of the universe, when we sit before him in judgment, he's not going to care where we landed on the theological spectrum on this issue. What he's going to care about, the, 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 things, the things that matter, is, is, is whether we believed in Jesus Christ, whether we loyally persevered in his name until death did us part. And it doesn't mean that we don't have ups and downs in life, but, it, but those are the questions that matter. 
Who cares if you, weren't never, if, you, if you actually weren't saved or if you were saved and walked away? I mean, it does matter. I'm not saying theology doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, judgment day, what's going to matter is, are we following Christ? Do we believe in him? Are we saved through our faith in Jesus Christ? And did we not waver on that? We all have a call to persevere till the very end, no matter what this life throws at us. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. James 1, 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then in Hebrews, later in chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so let me ask you guys this today. It's not a comfortable question. It's not a comfortable question at all. But are you concerned with the endurance of your faith? Are you concerned with the topic of perseverance? Are you willing to heed the warnings? And no doubt there are dangers on both extremes, okay? There are dangers to constantly battling the idea that you might not be saved, all right? There's dangers to, you know, feeling like you're in and out, in and out, in and out, okay? There's dangers there. There's also dangers to thinking that since you said a prayer when you were a kid, boom, you're good. Your eternal security is locked away and you don't got to do nothing ever again, okay? There's dangers on both ends, no doubt. But the benefits of truly evaluating our faith can be precisely what we need to avoid a complacent and dead spiritual life that can lead to unbelief and death eternal. So will we heed the warning and will we persevere? Will we heed the warning and persevere? As we move into our next section, I think we will see the application from Hebrews is partially that even in the greatest warnings in Scripture, there is encouragement for God's people. Even in the greatest warnings in Scripture, you see it in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there is encouragement for God's people. Read verses 9 through 12 with me, if you will. And keep in mind, he just got done with this this warning passage. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So in verse 9, when he says, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. As Hebrews, as the writer of Hebrews moves back towards encouragement for the moment, he assures the readers that he does not consider them as a group in danger or to be at the point of no return into apostasy. He says, we feel sure of better things for you. He even goes along with the favorite New Testament uh, phrase, beloved. He says, beloved, we feel sure of better things. We feel sure of better things. And he kind of takes the role of a father, where, where a father would, would, or, or a mother would, would warn their child of something that's really dangerous. And they'd say, hey, you got to watch out for this. Don't do this. But then they'd get you with some encouragement, too. And they say, hey, but, but I, know, I, know that, I know that you're smart. I know that you understand this, whatever. Like, I know that you're not going to slip into this, but I have to warn you anyways, okay? Um, that's where we see uh, the, the tone kind of uh, going into. And now, 
as we enter into a topic of encouragement after the warning, um, <laughs> encouragement is nice, right? How many of you like to be encouraged occasionally? Two of you, cool. Um, encouragement is nice, right? But, but it has to be founded on something for it to be worthwhile, right? right? If, it's just, if it's not founded in anything, if it's just, then it's just baseless words of flattery that are literally meaningless, right? Now, I'm not a female, but I've been around it long enough to notice some things that confuse me. And I'll pick on the women here for a minute because I'm not one, and you guys are probably going to snip that cut from the audio and haunt me with it. Um, but one of the things that I, 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 see, I see girls do is, you know, a girl walks into a room at the same time as another girl, and there's this, like, flurry of commotion, and, like, feathers are flying everywhere, and they're like, they're like oh, my gosh, you look so great, and I love your hair, and did you do something with it? And there's that earring that goes down to here, and your shirt, and your shoes, TJ Maxx, candle, blah. And I'm like, whoa. What just happened, right? Now, the thing that's interesting about it, well, it kind of disturbs me for two reasons. Number one, if a man did that to me, I would be perturbed, you know, to say the least. Um, (laughs) But number two, the thing that confuses me is that women have this innate ability to know in just an instant whether that's like genuine, founded, true words of encouragement or whether it's like backhanded, right? Like, well, she said that my makeup looked good and I didn't do my makeup today, so what is that supposed to mean, right? And, you know, I understand the concept, but I will never have that intuition, right? But all that to say, baseless compliments and flattery are worthless if they're not backed by something, right? The encouragements of Scripture, just like the one that we're reading through here, are not baseless words of flattery, okay? The author of Hebrews does not have an agenda that requires him to butter up his audience so that he can sell them something, all right? He's going to back it up something with something. He's going to tell them, frankly, why he feels sure that they are, are, are destined for better things, that they are not headed down this path of no return, right? He says, we feel sure of better things. Beloved, we want to speak to you in this way, but yet in your case, we feel sure of better things, things that hold on to salvation or things that belong to salvation, Okay? And so he's going to back it up with something, and, and, and there are real markers of faith that, that we can examine in our lives, just like the author of Hebrews is going to do here, that can help give us what the author would say, a full assurance of hope until the end, at the end of verse 11 there. And so this isn't a conclusive list, but as we read on, we see what the writer of Hebrews is noticing in the general group of believers. Verse 10, it says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. So here we see the basis for the writer's encouraging statement, right? It's not just empty words of flattery. And as far as God's justice is concerned, it's kind of, it's immediately connected there, right? You notice that it's immediately connected. God is not so unjust. So basically it's saying God is just to recognize, right, um, to recognize your work and the love that you've shown in his name. And so the writer of Hebrews clearly sees it as inconceivable that God would overlook the fruits of grace in the lives of the believers. And this is important after we come off of such a a harsh warning, right? Because it's important for us to realize that we don't serve some chaotic God who's some, like, chaotic force of, like, you know, that's just going to be forgetful or neglectful to, to see, you know, our works, right? Or see the, the, the fruits of his spirit working inside of us, right? We don't serve a God who's just going to, like, forget that we have been living for him or something like that, right? And so Hebrews is saying, yeah, 
God is just to see those things. And I see those things too. And I see the, the fruit of your, your labor. I see the fruit of your faith. And that's why I'm sure and I feel sure that you're not going down this path. God doesn't have some secret standard of like good enough that we can never know about. It's not so. That's not how God is. God has given us a way to salvation. It's very clear. It's through Jesus. He's given us the, uh, what he expects of us. It's very clear in scripture in general. And he's also given us markers that we can have assurance that we're on the right track. Those are, also, those are all three things that are very clear in scripture. Sometimes you've got to work to get to them, right? But, the, but they're clear in scripture. And God is just to acknowledge and see these things hold up his end of the deal per se, right? Since we're talking about justice. Um, so moving on into verses 11 and 12, it says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So here we see three admonishments or commands uh, that, 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 essentially would you would say like maybe either assist in perseverance or at least show that you're on the right track but that assist in this endurance and instill confidence in our standing before God and so the desire here that we see in the first part of the verse that he's talking about is a desire that he has for his readers to continue in their faith in such a way to live their faith in such a way that they have full assurance full assurance of hope until the end, at, at, at the end of verse 11 there. And so this is where we're going to have some practical applications as we near the end of the sermon, because I just want to take these uh, three general categories that the writer of Hebrews has, because um, they're, they're his applications, and so let's, let's, let's try to make them our applications as well. And I think that these responses or these applications uh, serve to, to, do, uh, to do two things. Number one, they, they assist in endurance and perseverance when we, when we do these things. And then number two, they give us, like he says, the full assurance of hope until the end so that we don't have to be constantly struggling with whether we are like, actually saved or not. And so the first one I want to talk about is sloth or sluggishness. You see that in verse 12. It says, so that you may not be sluggish. So he's, he's talking about sloth or laziness. It's one of the seven deadly sins. You guys probably, probably know that. And, and, and it doesn't take a genius to, to look into your life and, and see that sluggishness, sloth, laziness, right? That's the killer of endurance, right? That's the killer of perseverance. It's the killer of productivity, Right, And you see that in your work, your school, your friendships, your romantic relationships, relationship with your family, any sphere of your life, laziness is going to kind of it's going to kind of kill it, right? And so the author of Hebrews knows that this also applies to our spiritual lives. And he doesn't want us to be lazy in our spiritual work. He doesn't want us to be slothful in our spiritual walk. And I think that this is such an important time for you guys to consider this because you're setting the trajectory of your life in so many different ways. But most importantly, as adults, you're setting your trajectory for the rest of your adulthood in your spiritual walk as well. And so this is a super important thing for us to look at. And, and, and I want to I let you guys know, you've probably already seen it, right? But, but there, is, there is a serious temptation when you enter into adulthood. Maybe it takes a couple years of life to really beat you down. I don't know. But there's a serious temptation to just show up for church on Sunday and just... Call it good. We're good. That's it. I don't do anything else. 
Nothing else in my faith is being done. There's no inner work. There's no outer work. I go to church. I'm good. That is a serious temptation, and that is sloth. That's sluggishness, okay? And so I want to challenge you guys to not only resist that now, but set your trajectory right. Resist laziness. Find an area to serve. Get into scripture. Develop a real prayer life. Seriously answer the question of why Jesus is worth loyally following unto, and even if necessary, into death, okay? We need to seriously have a work ethic when it comes to our faith. And this has been kind of a a persistent message of Hebrews is essentially asking the question, are you coasting or are you developing? The next application here is to work, to work. And that is um, not explicitly said here, but I believe that it's found in the admonishment to show the same earnestness of those he speaks of before who are working out of love. You see that, I think, in verse um, 11, where he says, and we desire each of you to to show the same earnestness, right? To the same earnestness of what? Of working in love in the passage, in the, the verse before. And so the Bible is clear that we want to show earnestness in our works. It's clear that we're not saved by our works, but it's also clear that we are saved partially for good works, okay? That's why, that's why Paul says that we are literally, he says, we are saved for good works, which means we're saved from bondage to sin so that we can be free to work in righteousness. So what does this mean? Well, it's, it's inward and it's outward, right? When we, when we work in our spiritual lives inwardly, we, we do things like reading through the, the fruits of the Spirit, and we say, is there any work that's need to be, that needs to be done here in my life? Is there any? And, and if you can't find something, just go to your roommate. They'll know uh, where the fruits of the Spirit are lacking in you. And, uh, and so, and then it's also outward as we read through the commandments of scripture. You know, are we serving those around us? Are we working in discipleship? Are we working in evangelism to those uh, unbelievers around us? Are we working to pursue goodness and truth in our careers and in our schoolwork and in our relationships and everything else? It's inward and it's outward. We're called to both. And then the last one here is to imitate. Verse 12, second half, it says, but imitators, or be imitators, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So finally, to imitate. One of the things that I love about the Bible is that it's, it's very realistic. It's very practical in a lot of ways. And, and one of the ways that the Bible is very realistic in a lot of passages is that it recognizes the need that we have to uh, look at someone else. Like, how did they do it? How did they work in love? How did they have faith? How did they have patience? How did they have endurance, right? And so scripture readily pushes us towards those who have walked in faith before us or even along us and says, hey, you can look to them to to help you here. Now, obviously, no man or woman in scripture or that you'll ever find today is worthy of perfect imitation except for um, Christ himself, right? But But we can look to other people. And, and we can look to these promises. And the immediate context here is, is, is probably talking about Abraham. He's kind of leading into that in the next passage, right? Where he says that through patience and faith and endurance, he inherited the promises that God had gave to him, okay? And so we too have promises from God. We have promises of eternal life. We have promises of unity with Christ in heaven. We have all these promises from God, but we do have to walk through this life. We do have to have endurance. We have to have perseverance. And so we can look to people like Abraham, but this is where kind of the, the, pract- the super practical application comes in. 
we can't imitate if we don't know who to imitate, right? And so I want to challenge you guys practically here to, to jump into the, in, into the word, jump into some of these stories of these men and women, kind of heroes of the faith, and, 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 and get into their stories and say, okay, how, how did they have patient endurance? How did they have works of love um, that were founded in grace? How did they have all of these things? And if you're looking for a good list, Hebrews chapter 11 has a whole list of them. You can start with that list of faithful men and women there and then move forward. And so ultimately, the end of this passage, you know, the end of the section here is we need to avoid sloth to work and to imitate because it is through works of love, patient faith, and endurance that we can have, as the writer of Hebrews says, a full confidence in our salvation and our hope to the end. And, and that we can have full confidence that this warning is not something that we are currently in or falling into. And so as, I, as we close, I want to I challenge each of you, you know, and, and, and again, you, know, you might have a different way of approaching this passage, but I, I want to challenge you guys to wrestle with this warning. I want to challenge you to, to wrestle with uh, what's going on here in this passage. Wrestle with the warning. Re- wrestle with whether your life exemplifies the things that, If the writer of Hebrews was writing to you, he would give you the warning, and then he would say, but, beloved, I feel certain of better things, because I see these things going on in your life. I feel certain that you're not going down that road. Would he say that about you? I think that's a valid question. Would he say that about me? And that's what I want to challenge you guys with. And at the very least, maybe you come out more confident than ever, and at the most, it could be the most important question or wake-up call in your life. You see, warning passages in Scripture are a lot like emotions that we typically deem as negative, emotions that we don't like to sit in. Any of you guys that have been through the Conquerors group, you know what I'm talking about here. Um, guilt is one of those emotions, right? We don't like to feel guilt. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. But it's a really good thing to feel. It's a really good emotion to feel when we've sinned, when we've messed up. Not supposed to stay there, but what it's supposed to do is it's a gift from the Holy Spirit, that emotion that's supposed to help us feel the weight of our sin, know that we messed up, and propel us into the opposite direction. I think the same thing is true of warning passages in the New Testament, warning passages in the Bible like this. It's meant to make us consider. It's meant to maybe shock us a bit, but it's meant ultimately to propel us in the opposite direction of following Christ in faithful endurance. So let us move on to deeper things, to spiritual meat, to works of love, virtues of patience and faith and hope so that we may have a full assurance of hope to the end.